Every time I think I'm sort of over that hill, there seems to be another hill that's bigger. There's, there's never a, never a moment you've made it. It's, it's, it's a challenge that doesn't stop. It's relentless, um, but I enjoy that. I think that's something I've enjoyed with cooking and, and restaurants in general. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Regional dining has become one of the most influential ingredients shaping our culinary voice. But what's it like to not only run one of the most important restaurants in the country, but representing one of the world's greatest wines too? Scott Huggins is the director of McGill Estate Restaurant and Kitchen at Penfolds in South Australia. Scott, how are you? Very well, Anthony. How are you? I'm good. It's great to get you on the show. You've got a hell of a gig there. How are things at the moment? Things are good. Things are really good. Um, yeah, we're taking along. Tell us a little bit about McGill Estate Restaurant and Kitchen and sort of what it encompasses for those that haven't been there. Um, so McGill Estate is the spiritual home for Penfolds. Uh, it's it's quite unique in the sense it's a it's a vineyard in a suburb, uh, twenty minutes from Adelaide City. Um, we sit on ten acres here. Um, the wine. Some of the wine that gets picked here does go into grains. So, you know, we still have open ferment tanks here that we still make wine here. Um, there's two restaurants, uh, a, a more, you know, fine dining restaurant as such that seats 35 covers uh, and then a bistro that we do, you know, 75 covers in one sitting. Um, more of the food that we, you know, enjoy eating and then more food that we like to create. I know you've been there a, a decade now and you're well and truly um, comfortable in that role, but what's it like sort of being associated with Penfolds? Is, it, is there an obligation and a nervousness in regards to what you do with one of the world's greatest wines? Um, maybe at the start, the, the shoes were quite big to fill, um, but I think Penfolds and I have a great relationship moving forward and, and um, you know, we... We enjoy working with each other, I think, in a, in a great, great deal. Does, does that sort of uh, have an interplay with your food and the dish creation? Do you, are you mindful of the wines that are produced as well? Um, yes, yes, always. Um, I think that the, the advantage we've got um, is we've got such a, a great back vintage seller here at McGill. So, you know, the dishes have always come first and we've always created the dishes, but then we've always had the opportunity then to go through a lot of back vintage and choose wines that suit the dishes that we've created. Um, and, and the same sort of ethos where, you know, we're, we're choosing the best ingredients we can as they choose the best grapes they can, but it doesn't have to be from a certain um, vineyard. It could be multi-vineyards and the same as us, us getting product. You know, we, we, we go across to different suppliers to, to choose what we want. Yeah, tell us a little bit about sort of your connection with suppliers. South Australia is renowned for extraordinary produce on land and sea. Um, what's some of the connections that you've made with producers that appear on the menu? Um, so probably the main one would be Scott De Bruin. Um, him and I have built a great relationship over the years, over the last 10 years. Um, I actually used his product over in Singapore um, and it was, you know, such an amazing product but now – been here in South Australia and, and, and building a connection with him um, from day one. Um, we wanted to align, you know, the likes of grains with, you know, what, what I think is the best best Wagyu in the world, um, which was Scott's, Scott's product. Um, but, you know, the, the opportunity um, to be in a restaurant and take your staff down there and, and enjoy the, the, the farm, um, for them to see where it comes from, them to talk to the farmer is, is, is you know, an un, un, unreal experience. Um, 
and something that you know we treasure treasure I want to explore sort of your cookery and what you're doing there at McGill Estate shortly, but take us back to when you were young. Where, whereabouts did you grow up and what sort of role did food play? So I grew up in the Dandenong Ranges, so a little place called The Patch um, in between Mombolk and Belgrave. My property was sort of 10 acres and it overlooked or the jam factory, so I don't know if anyone that's my age remembers Mombolk Jam. Um, that factory was the paddock across from my house. So as a child, you know, you'd smell the, the jam getting cooked. Um, it didn't last that long. It ended up getting turned into a plastic factory for pots, but it was, it was, it was the beginning. Um, we had, as young, young kids, mum had um, Anglo-Nubian goats, so she'd milk the goats and, and, and you know, obviously give us the, the milk as kids. It wasn't sold. It was just for the family. Um, and... She, mother, was brought up on a, on a dairy farm and dad was brought up on a pig farm. So we weren't brought up on a farm, you know, myself and my brother. But I think the, um, them being on farms, you know, sort of paid a big part of, of work ethic and, and so on. Mum was the oldest daughter out of eight kids. So she had five brothers that worked on the dairy farm and two sisters. But as the oldest daughter, I think, you know, from the age of probably 12, her responsibility was to help her mum cooking and cleaning and doing all the rest of it. So she was a pretty unbelievable cook. Um, she, yeah, it was a great upbringing. Is there any sort of family dishes or feasts that you recall your mum making from when you were young? Um, no, I never like. You know, she'd always she'd do a lot of roasts, and I end up complaining about it. Like bloody hell, you know, there's a <laughs> we'd have a roast lamb and a roast chook and roast vegetables, and I'd whinge about it as a kid. And now we're looking back, going, oh, but you know, we're pretty lucky in that sense. And I know Pav, you know, she used to make a bloody good Pav, and um, Grandma's Grandma's sponge cake was was pretty legendary. When did you first sort of start thinking about a career as a chef, and um, what sort of triggered that? Um, I've always loved cooking or not, sorry, I've always loved food, <laughs> not so much the cooking, um, in, in a great, in a great manner. I, um, I was obsessed about food to the point, you know, mum, mum tells the stories now that I'd, you know, at the age of sort of five or six, you know, at school, I'd ask mum what was for dinner before school had even started. And she's like, I don't know. Why, why would you be asking me now? I said, because I'd like to think about it all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she, she still gives me shit about that. Um, but I've always loved, loved, <laughs> loved food. Um, but I think, you know, it was my 21st birthday. Um, they had some cards read, like, read, read, uh, read out during the, during the night. And there was a, a card when I was about seven years old that I wrote to my babysitter that I was in love with at the time. And I wrote this card saying, you know, gig, when I get old enough, I'll, I'll be a chef and I'll cook for you every night. Um, and they read this, this card out and it was quite funny because I ended up being a chef. What were the f- sort of first steps into commercial cookery for you? Where did you cut your teeth? Um, so I got to year nine, um, struggled with school, in a great deal, <laughs> um, wasn't still. I'm not very good at reading and writing, um, and my attention span for that stuff was really bad. So, got to year nine. Um, they suggested I spend um, some time looking at different trades. So we did a a course in like, at, at, at a TAFE and did a few different things like cabinet making and electronics and everything else. That nothing really tickled my fancy. I always loved food. 
So I got the opportunity to do a day in the kitchen a week. So it sort of was a Wednesday, um, and it was a place called Kenlock, which is up in the Dandenongs. It was sort of a quite a iconic restaurant back in the day. So I used to spend a day up there on a Wednesday um, helping the kitchen, and, and, yeah, sort of I think I fell in love with it straight away. Um, so I worked on Wednesdays, and I think we got to the end of year nine, and I worked on Christmas Day, and he asked me if I'd like to work on New Year's, and I said, I'd, you know, no problem at all. And then on New Year's night, after we finished at sort of midnight, he asked me if I'd like to do an apprenticeship. And I still remember, you know, getting home that night and calling mum because they had some party um, and letting her know that I'd been offered an apprenticeship and they will you know, so supportive and over the moon because they knew that I hated school and that was probably the best thing to, to, for me to sort of keep moving forward. Do you have any stories from those first couple of years of what it was like for you and sort of when you felt sort of comfortable in your career? Um, I still don't feel comfortable. Not <laughs> 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 um, uh, sure. The... It was hard. Like it was, it was really hard in the in the early days. It's, it's always it's a hard job, I guess. So I've, I've always tried to push myself out of my comfort zone. And when it sort of became a little bit comfortable, I, I'd moved on to another another establishment. Um, and just just doing stupid shit when you're when you when you're young and you've got no common sense in, in the kitchen, you know. I still, I still remember this time when I was an apprentice, and everyone had gone home. It would have been one o'clock in the morning. And, the floor was filthy, and I had this. There was this hose near the near the plunge. I thought oh, I'll just hose the floor down. So I was sitting hosing this floor for probably twenty minutes, and then I realised there was no drainage holes. <laughs> so they only come down about two o'clock in the morning, and this kitchen's flooded with water. And I'm trying, trying to trying to trying to mop it up by myself at the age of sixteen. <laughs> Amazing. As you started to build your career, who were the really influential people and venues that you worked at? Um, the first sort of serious restaurant I think I got back from overseas was was working with Teague. Um, I sort of was his sous chef at, at 21 um, and that was sort of a, you know, it was a really cool time for me to work. I had a really good kitchen culture, or I thought, like a rock star, <laughs> rock star sort of culture. We, we worked hard and, and played hard and I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the team mentality of that place and, and, and Teague was a, a really good um, mentor, you know, at, at that time. Um, and then moving on from there, I sort of I worked with a, a, a restaurateur named Ignatius Chan, so Iggy's in Singapore. Um, that was number 26 in the world when we went over there. Um, and he was probably the first person, and still is actually the first person I've worked for, the, who's the restaurant owner who wasn't the actual chef, he was a sommelier by trade. Um, so a very different view on, on the customer. And, you know, he sort of enlightened me that chefs spend too much time cooking for chefs and not for customers and um, sort of taught me to st- stop thinking about cooking for chefs. You know, it's an ego thing, um, which was, you know, it was really enlightening. And then I uh, met Dan Hunter there. Dan came over and did a dinner at Iggy's and fell in love with, with what Dan was doing and, and how good he was as a, as a, as a cook. Um, so I finished up there. I was in Europe for a little bit and then came and worked with Dan at the Royal Mail and he sort of, yeah, taught me a different a different level of cooking that I'd never seen before, um, you know, a clinical way of running a kitchen um, that I still, you know, implement in some, some way today. Take us back to that period of time at the Royal Mail. It was such an important and influential time and Dan Hunter sort of really brought that venue to life. Um, do you have any stories of what he's like to work with? Um, Dan's Dan's just so precise. You know, if you if you could look at a surgeon <laughs> in a chef, it would be Dan. Um, 
you know, and I just, I, you know, for, for me, I was just, you know, uh, um, admired, admired the way he cooked. Um, he wasn't rough around the edges. He was precise. Um, the way he seasoned was was just educational. The garden, um, you know, it was just it was just another level I'd never seen before. Um, but yeah, difficult, difficult kitchen to work in. Um, we would run the bistro from the same kitchen as the restaurant. So you're sort of you're getting orders in for the bistro, and then you're also trying to run the restaurant at the same time. Um, you know, and that was one of the hardest you know kitchens to work in for me at the time. Um, but yeah, it was an amazing place. He's um, yeah, he taught me a lot. You spent a fair bit of time abroad, and particularly in Japan as well. Tell us about your time there. Yeah, so Japan, I. Finished up with Dan. Um, the idea was to go across and work with um, Narisawa and Yamamoto, um, both their restaurants. And I ended up starting at Yamamoto's restaurant, Ryogan, um, as a stage. And I think within the first three to four weeks, um, he'd offered me a paid job, um, which wasn't much. You know, we're talking $500 a month um, pay. Um, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, about $500 a month plus accommodation. Um, but... Um, that was yeah a big eye opener for myself, um, ingredient wise and, and precision on food and respect for technique and, and seasons that you've never seen before. Um, you know Australia talks about four seasons, but Japan have seasons that run like micro seasons. It could be a, a product that's there for for three weeks or a fish that rivers, swims up the river and they can catch it for two weeks. It's these little tiny seasons that you know a, a, an eye opener. Yeah. Was there any sort of particular ingredient or dish that really sort of stands out in your memory from that time? Um, probably fugu shirako, so the, the, the sperm gland from the puffer fish. Um, that was pretty special. It sort of come in at a real short season. Um, but, yeah, something that's pretty, pretty mind-blowing. What did you take from your time from Japan and what was it like coming back to Australia after that? Um, well, Japan, the, the, just the respect for ingredient was probably what I took from there. Um to 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 outsource or not outsource the wrong word to use to to um, source ingredients that, that that are so special and then apply a technique um, just to, to bring out the best of that ingredient was just something that, that you don't see in Australia and I think the best way that Japanese would describe them versus what how we cook or how the Japanese cook compared to us is we look at an ingredient and we say oh how are we going to cook this ingredient and they look at an ingredient and say how are we going to cut it. Um, and that's the best way of looking at it, you know. So they, they have a different theory about what they're looking at with, with the texture or the, the way that it's, 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 it's been handled. Um, but it's, it's also very hard because you work, we work with all these amazing ingredients and we have, you know, all these different fish coming in in, in bags that are alive, um, in so much live, you know, seafood coming in and, and whatnot. But then you come back to Australia and you can't, you don't have access to those ingredients. You don't have access to a lot of that stuff. Um, so it's sort of trying to research out some, some special little bits here and there, but it's, it's, it's difficult to, you could never cut and paste what you do there and here. How did you end up in South Australia? Yeah, so I finished in, in Japan and we thought, we thought I'd come back to South Australia to sort of get my feet back on the ground. It sort of seemed like a, a cheaper option than moving back to Melbourne at the time. Um, so to come back here and, and save a little bit of money and get my sort of head above water. Um, and then obviously I didn't know too much about Penfolds, but Penfolds was, was advertising for a role. Um, and I didn't really know too much about the role and probably was a bit ignorant coming into it. 
um, applied for it and got it pretty quickly. But it was, you know, it was a pretty crazy story of of me working for for small restaurant owners and and you know, own, chef owned restaurants to a to a corporate business. Um, you know, someone someone that can't even read and write, and I get this job and I was sitting in front of a computer getting an email and <laughs> typing with one finger, going, "What have I got myself into?" Um, but a, a pretty big learning curve, and you know, I still remember the um, the job interview. They said that they'd fly me down to Melbourne to to continue the interview process, um, which they booked me a flight um, and gave me a cab charge. And I remember ringing Dad and saying, "Dad, you know they've, they've actually booked me a flight to Melbourne for this interview and and, and give me a cab charge to get to the interview." He's like, "Oh, you've made it, son. You know, <laughs> this is like <laughs> this is like you know an unheard of." Thing in the last sort of you know ten years of my career, where we just worked so hard, <laughs> did everything for free, and just expected to be on the door and and and, and so on. So it was a bit of a wow, what have I got myself into moment. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. You, you were following in the footsteps of the late Jock Zonfrillo. What was it like for you having to, to create your own food in that environment, following in his footsteps? Was it challenging? Um, I, the same thing, I came into it very ignorant. I came back from Japan. I didn't know too much about what Jock had done or, or, or Penfolds itself. So I sort of had my head up my bum in some sense with that. Um, and it was my first sort of head chef role to run the kitchen. Um, you know, I'd been the head chef for Ryan Cliff over at Tipping Club and, and so on, but obviously it was his creations and his his running of the kitchen. Um, it was my first opportunity to do what I was going to do. So I was, I was probably so caught up in me trying to create what I'd learnt in the last 10 years. Um, and there was difficulty, you know, I think at the time the journalists in South Australia were sort of putting each other against each other, which was which wasn't cool, you know, trying to see who was the top dog and, who, us versus him, which which is the wrong way. Of, I don't I don't really agree with. They could have celebrated two great restaurants in South Australia, but they sort of put two restaurants against each other. Um, but th- that was that. Um, you know, so at the start, there's a little bit of um, uh, competition as such, but but that didn't last long. We sort of we end up getting on. Tell us a little bit about uh, your food and your approach. Is there a dish or two that sort of exemplifies your cooking? Um, yeah, I suppose it goes back to the Japanese, you know, me being in Japan um, with trying to find an amazing ingredient and, and doing a minimal amount just to bring out what, what, what speaks that that dish. Um, uh, sort of a dish that we we did was sort of was just a piece of Wagyu um, with a technique that I've learned in Japan to cook it, which was sort of seared in a really hot pan and then iced in ice water to stop the cooking process. Um, and then poached, not in a bag, but just poached in an in a oil bath, um, sort of at, at, that, at that low temperature, then taken out and dried, um, and then cooked over charcoal um, with garlic soy, sort of sprayed on the outside of it, um, on and off, on and off, on and off, and then we'd do that, and then we'd just serve it as is on a plate with a little bit of mustard on the side. I think, you know, we did, did that a couple of years into when I'd opened the restaurant, but it was a bit, bit of a, it's just a piece of beef on a plate moment. And, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the feedback was good and <laughs> it was sort of something that sort of stayed on the menu. In uh, uh, more recently, you moved from uh, being chef to director of the whole venue. What's that transition been like for you? Um, huge, <laughs> huge. Uh, 
yeah, so to the one thing is, you know, that first moment of being a head chef and, and running a kitchen and, and working with a corporate company for 10 years and learning a lot of the corporate ways of doing things and, and you know, trying to embrace a lot of it and, and the challenges of it, but, but learning a lot of it and thinking I, I knew most of it um, and then taking over the lease of the business and, and being the sole director. So I haven't got any partners in it. It's just myself in that sense. Um, and the learning curve has just been... The same the last 12 months, 18 months, the amount that I've learned, the amount that I thought I knew that I didn't know um, is, 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 yeah, is huge. Penfolds uh, is a producer of Grange, one of the world's great wines, and it's launched all over the world. Do you have any stories of the adventures you've been on cooking for sort of the launches of Grange? Yeah, so that, that was a, that was some of the great the great part of working with Penfolds. Um, we've done some amazing things around the world, and we've, we've we've launched it. You know, I think you and I were in Shanghai at one stage. We did a launch over there. That was one of the the times that I sort of had <laughs> went down in the kitchen in Shanghai. Um, <laughs> 450 guests. Um, I actually took a. a took a chef from from mcgill that was chinese to help me sort of translate in the kitchen with these guys and we got there and he didn't speak the same dialect so (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't as helpful as i thought and then we got to the we got to where we went to do this dinner um sort of about six hours before kickoff and i got told there was no flames allowed inside the venue venue. And we could only use these warming boxes. Um, so 450 people with no flames and a warming box. It was sort of uh, one of those times where I fucking went down pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot, a lot has, a lot has changed in the world of hospitality in the last couple of years. What, what's sort of your approach, and what are you doing over the next sort of year or two with your role? Um, well, I've got I've got 10 acres up in Piccadilly, so 20 minutes from from the restaurant here. Um, we're investing a lot into to sort of trying to produce some vegetables and fruit and, and nuts and so on for, for the restaurant. So we're putting a lot of stuff into that. Um, and then obviously trying to compost a lot of the wastage from the restaurant. You know, we're looking at putting some st- – implementing some composting things into the restaurant to help with that, you know, that side of things. Um, but, yeah, it's probably for, for me at the moment um, – trying to produce and grow things that we can control. Um, that's probably the next step for us, yeah. Well, you've been doing amazing things there for over a decade now. What, what do you love about what you do? Um, I love it because there's never a dull moment. It's always a challenge. I think, you know, every time I think I'm sort of over that hill, there seems to be another hill that's bigger. Um so I think that's 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 the the drive. Well, that's the the inspiration for me. Is it's always there's there's never a, a never a moment you've made it. And there's always a challenge, and and to keep the restaurant relevant, um, to keep the staff motivated, um, you know, and keep keep sort of being, you know, in front of people, you know, is 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 a challenge. It's it's a challenge that doesn't stop. It's relentless. Um, but I enjoy that. I think that's something I've enjoyed with cooking and, and restaurants in general. There's never a, a moment that, that, that it just slows down. It just fucking keeps going. It's relentless, which is, which is you know, which is, which is my, my pull to it, I guess. A, a couple of times during this chat, you mentioned that, you know, you weren't very good at school and you found it challenging and, and that was not your forte and yet you've become one of the best chefs in Australia. What sort of advice would you give to a young professional looking to carve out a career in hospitality 
Um, it's just, it's relentless. And if that's your, if that's your work ethic and you, you like to be pushed, um, it, it, it would work for you. Um, it's, you don't, yeah, it's, it's hard because even, even for me going through my apprenticeship, you know, my brother's a, a maxillofacial surgeon, so he's a double doctorate. And I left school when I was 15 and can't read and write. So same parents, same school, same everything. Um, but obviously totally different kids. But even for that, you know, my parents would question, um, you know, my pay or why was I getting, you know, working so many hours and why would I go to Japan and work for next to nothing and why would I go to Singapore and work for next to nothing. And, you know, my argument was always, you know, but Richard's got a hex bill. He's, he's learning to be a doctor and he actually has to pay for that to become his, you know, to get his end goal and his career. What's the difference between me trying to carve out my career and doing it in the best possible way um, to get to where I need to get to. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of, you know, I think if you choose to be a good cook or you choose to cook, you know, you can, you can, you can learn a lot, but it, sometimes it comes at the cost of working, working hard for it. You know, it doesn't get handed to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Scott, um, it's an absolute honour to catch up with you and can't wait to see where you take McGill Estate from here on. Uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.